let's get rolling. We, uh, if you were here last week, we kicked off into this um, new study called I Am Who I Said I Am, and we covered a lot of material. I mean, a lot of material. So you should go back, if you weren't here, and check it out online. I can't go over all of it, um, but uh, I do need to go back a little bit before we go forward this morning. So just by way of review, a little bit. Um, last week, we kind of walked through from creation in the garden to Christ and to the cross, the incremental and progressive revelation of who God is, what he was like, that he had a name, what it was and what it meant. We started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first book, the first line in the Bible, right, where God first introduces himself with a Hebrew word called Elohim, if you remember that. And Elohim just simply meant, like, it translates God, it just meant deity. Just like in English, it wasn't a name, it was a title, you know? And so one of the things that, that we discovered together is God gave us a name to call him, but we choose to keep calling him God. That's like, you know, me continue to refer to, my, to Joan as wife, you know, wife. Um, that wasn't how he revealed himself over time, and it wasn't the kind of relationship he was looking to have with his people. And so we walk through how this creator deity, through the book of Exodus, we see slowly over time him revealing himself to Moses and to this people called Israel that he was trying to get in a relationship with. The pinnacle of that revelation of who God is occurs in Exodus chapter 35, where God for the first time in history reveals his name and his character. And I told you last week, his name is not God. And his character isn't like cantankerous, cranky old man, right? His name, even though we use the word Jehovah a lot, I explained how we kind of got that mostly because we were trying to figure out a way not to use his name. And so we landed on Jehovah. Well, that's not his name. And he's not like this kind of wishy-washy, anything goes God. His name, who remembers what his name is? His name is Yahweh, which means I am what I am, I will be. And then he goes on to tell Moses what it is, what it is that he is. And I, I, I share with you guys, this is so foundational, important in your life, maybe summed up by Tozer Best, A.W. Tozer, when he said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because we tend, by some secret law of the soul, to move towards whatever our mental image is of God. Were we able to extract from a, a man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God? We could predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. How we live our lives, who we choose to be in a relationship with, who we love and relate to, how we work, where we work, how we parent, they're all foundationally influenced oftentimes by a misguided understanding of God. As we discovered last week, it's often a God in our, uh, that we've constructed that's just simply in our own image. Remember we talked about this, right? Isn't it ironic that God loves the same people you love, he hates the same people you hate, and he voted for the same guy you did? <laughs> now, so to correct that, God shows up and goes, I I'm, going to, I'm going to give you my name. And in the first century, your name carried with it deep meaning. It wasn't just, a, you know, it wasn't just like Dennis, 
right? It, ha it had deep meaning and significance. And so last week, I gave you this Bible memorization card. My, my hope is that you'll take this home. There's more of these available for you at the Engage Center outside, that you'll take these home and you'll begin to memorize this. Because if we can get this truth into our hearts together as a church, as a people in this town, this will change your life. Because your view of God changes who you are, how you act. So, with that in mind, this is Exodus 34, verses 5 to, 5 to 7. This is the revelation of God. This is the revelation of God that is most quoted by the Bible in other parts of the Bible. And my hope is that as you memorize it, it would change you. So I'm going to ask you to read it with me again. We're going to read it every week as we start the, the, the sermons. So let's read it together. Okay? And remember when I showed you last week that any time in the scripture you see the Lord and it's all capitalized, that's because they decided to pull Yahweh's name out because they were afraid of breaking a commandment and put in the Lord. We were commanded to call him Yahweh. So here you're going to see that I put Yahweh back in next to Lord. So this is the revelation that Moses waited for. Read it with me. Then the Lord came down in the cloud. Hello? It was, like no, it was like nothing, no one, not one person. Let's try it again. Then the Lord came, there we go, in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That's Yahweh. And again, I, I know we're ending on a, on a bad part there. Everybody goes, I don't like saying that part. Uh, well, I didn't say that about God. He said it about himself. And it also means something different than you probably understand it to mean. We will get to that later in the series. Stay tuned. Over the next few weeks, we're going to go through each of those components. But today, I want to discuss one more impact of this revelation of the fact that God has a name. Why should you care and what does it mean to you? Moses, as we showed last week, he has this very unique relationship to God where, where he knows, he actually says, God, you've told me, you've revealed to me that you love me and that you're pleased with me. And, and when they meet, Moses would set up this tent to meet with God, it called the tent of meeting. And, and he had this different understanding of God. In fact, the Bible reveals that God had a relationship with Moses that blew the minds of first century people in terms of how you would relate to, to, to a God. Exodus chapter 33 sums it up best in verse 11 when it says this, Moses, he would go and he would meet with the Lord, and, and the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Revolutionary in the first century. Because God is supposed to be far and distant and angry, and we're supposed to be keeping him happy. But somehow Yahweh... Yahweh has friends. And the Bible lets us in on this conversation between these two friends, and, and it has profound implications. It's in the same part of the Bible. It's in Exodus. It's just two chapters prior to God revealing his name. The name that, that God said, I want you to call me forever. We've dropped the ball on that. There's something in us that likes to keep God 
you know, as Elohim, deity, and far. He, he intends to draw near. No, call me by my name. Call me Yahweh. Exodus chapter 32, God and Moses, they've been meeting up on Mount Sinai. You know the story, many of you. He's given Moses the Ten Commandments. Here's what happens. Exodus 32, starting in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down, go down off the hill, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they've made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it, and they've sacrificed to it, and they have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. What we discovered together last week is that God is not, is not just merely like energy or a force. While he's not a human being, he does have what theologians call personhood. God is a person in that he has feelings. This is a God who has friends. This is a God who wants to know and be known. He's meeting with Moses and he's giving Moses, understand this now, what many scholars believe is something called a ketubah. You know it as the Ten Commandments, but it would have been understood originally as God's ketubah. These commandments were not a list of do's and don'ts. They were more akin to what Jewish husbands would present to their brides and say, this is, this is how our relationship will be governed, by this ketubah. It is kind of the written contract of how we will, in this relationship, go forward. Now, what you and I, we don't get, much of the discussion, especially in Exodus between God and Moses, has, is, is just thick with wedding language. This is a God who doesn't want to be, just be known. This is a God who has friends. And this is a God who wants, in some way, understand this, to marry you. Deep intimacy. I'm going to be doing a wedding um, for some folks in our church on Friday night. And, and there are going to be portions of a ketubah read. Many of you have heard them. If you've been married, many of you have stayed to them. You know the words. Do you promise to love him, comfort him, honor him, keep him for better or for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful only to him so long as you both shall live. This is what these Ten Commandments were. This was God's kind of offer. This was God's relationship kind of uh, how, how, we're going to, how we're going to live together as we go forward. Me as your Yahweh and you as my people. This is what, what he said, Exodus chapter 20. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? Being faithful one to another. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth, beneath, uh, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, We've got to change the way, our mind, the way we think about God. Yahweh, Yahweh has friends. Yahweh, he wants you to call him by his name. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, right? But this is what the scripture teaches. Yahweh, this is really crazy, is jealous over you. He's jealous. Have you ever felt jealousy? You ever been in love and all of a sudden, you know, she went... To the problem with somebody else. Joan laughs because that actually happened to me and it still hurts, but uh, 
if you if you've ever, I'm still bitter. 1984. <laughs> She's out there, right, watching on Facebook now. I know it too. Um, so, have you ever felt that Yahweh is jealous over you? It's crazy. So, Moses says to this jealous God, or excuse me, God says to Moses, Now, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then, once I, once I deal with th th these people, once I get rid of them, I'm kind of going to start this over again. Then I'll make you into a great nation. See, what, what did the people do? They just created, they were down there and they created these golden calves. They just created a God that they could control. Like we talked about last week, we still do that. We still create gods that, you know, look a lot like us, right? Well, they did the same thing. Yahweh, he has friends. Yahweh, he gets jealous. And Yahweh, even though he's slow to anger, please understand, he does get angry. And then here comes the most profound part of this discussion, okay? If you will understand this, this is really going to change the way you relate to God. Listen to what happens. Exodus chapter 32, next verse. But Moses, after he hears this, sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians... See, Lord, here's what the Egyptians are going to say. It was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Moses says, Yahweh, turn from your fierce anger, relent, don't bring disaster on your people. Yahweh, remember your servants, Abraham and, and, and Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'll give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. I want you to understand what's happening here. Let me make it very simply. simple. God had decided he was done with this relationship. Right? It was over. He was going to, he was going to wipe Israel off the map and start again. And Moses get this, talks him out of it. You see, Yahweh, this is crazy. Yahweh has friends. Yahweh gets jealous over you. And Yahweh gets talked out of things. Apparently, there's something going on dynamic in the relationship where you can actually change the mind of God. Moses says, Yahweh, if you wipe this, these, these people out, then all the other nations are going to trash talk about you. You made a promise to lead your people through the desert. Your name's at stake. You've got to be careful here, Yahweh. This is the next verse. And then the Lord repented. Or excuse me. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. That word relented there is naham in Hebrew. It can be translated as Yahweh changed his mind or even repented. Yahweh repents. He nahamad. He changed his mind. This is not to say that, that he was in sin or he had done anything wrong. The word naham there carries with it this idea of regret or remorse over a decision. The, the idea isn't that God was off base at all. It's just that God was so moved emotionally by his interaction and relationship with Moses, he regretted his decision to judge Israel. And he changed his approach. You have the ability to interact with God 
and have him change his approach. This is crazy. Because this leads to a vision and an understanding of a God who responds to his people. Who, who's... In the way I put it, on the second time I'm saying this, it's still, it almost seems blasphemous, okay? I know it's weird, but this is the scripture. I'm not making this up. Yahweh is a God who is open to your ideas. He, 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 he wants to exist in a dynamic conversation involved in your lives. Not, con not in control in this automated, what's going to happen is going to happen with or without me kind of way. God is more of a friend than he is a formula. See, we love to reduce God to a formula, but that's not who he is. It's so hard to see him this way. This is the same reason Israel stopped using his name. We would much rather keep him out there. We'd much rather figure out how, how to get him to do what we want. We love to push intimacy with God away. We prefer just formulas. You ever notice in the Christian world, as soon as somebody puts a book out on how you can get God to do what you want, it becomes a bestseller. Right? If you just pray this way, pray that prayer, give this money, then he'll do what you want. This is not who Yahweh is. It's not a formulaic relationship. And it, this is seen... I, I was working on this this week, and I came across... Um, you see the movie Bruce Almighty? It's a great movie, uh, and really does a good job helping you understand um, some deeper theology. But in the 2003 movie, uh, Jim Carrey he plays a guy named Bruce Nolan. He's a down-on-his-luck TV reporter. And so he starts complaining to God, who's played by Morgan Freeman, uh, that God's not doing his job right. And so Jim Carrey uh, is offered the chance to try being God himself for one week. And in this clip, I'm going to show you here in a minute, the movie does this brilliant job of showing how we think we should relate to God and how we think God relates to us. That it's, in a sense, transactional and formulaic. Check this out. Well, you took the job, Bruce, so I suggest you get to it. Prayers, prayers, okay, prayers. Uh, this creepy whisper thing has to end. Organization and management. That's what I need. I need a system, something concrete. Concentrate. Files. Let all prayers be organized into files. Well, that takes care of the voices. Not exactly a space saver, though. Grace might notice. I know. Prayer post-its! Something with a lock. Security combination. A password. A password. Yo! You've got prayers. Welcome to the Revelation Superhighway. We bless. No mess. Downloading now. <laughs> it's good. It's good. This is gonna take a while. Twenty-seven thousand five hundred and three prayer requests. I better manifest some coffee. Hola, Juan Valdez. 
Buenos días. Buenos días. Disfruto un buen café. Gracias, señor. Adiós. Adiós. Now that's fresh mountain-grown coffee from the hills of Colombia. <laughs> so you can imagine how it turns out, right? Yes to all. But, but here, here's the point of that clip. That's religion, right? This is how somehow we got taught to relate to, to Yahweh. But Yahweh desires relationship. Now, we talk about this in the Christian world a lot. It's, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. We say that, but then we just default back to religion and relating to God through some kind of a formula or another. It's deep in us. If I'm good, if I stop smoking and, and, and drinking, and, and if I do more religious things, if I go on mission trips and give money, if, if I good up, sin less, I'll get. Comer in the book says, it's as if God was an algorithm for a computer software program, and we just have to plug in the right numbers, and boom, out comes our dream life. But he doesn't work that way because if you treat God like a formula, you're just going to get mad and frustrated because that's not what he does. That's not who he is. Like his, his name is Yahweh and he's jealous over you. God is far more interactive and interesting than we've made him out to be. The Associated Press did a study of teens that was kind of fascinating and telling. NBC News picked it up. Here's what they found. Quote, through this phone survey, these teens depicted broad affinity with religion. They liked, quote-unquote, God, right? The face-to-face -face interviews found many teams had religious knowledge, but it was meager, nebulous, and often a fallacy. And engagement with the substance of their traditions was remarkably shallow. Most seemed hard put to express coherently their beliefs and what difference that belief made. Many were so detached from the traditions of their faith, says the report, that they're virtually following a different creed. See, they're making up their own God. Virtually following a different creed in which an undemanding God exists mostly to solve problems and to make people feel good. Truth, in any absolute theological sense, took a back seat. And I love their concluding quote. God is something like a combination of a divine butler and cosmic therapist who's on call as needed, he, he says, and the trend reflected tendencies. It wasn't the kids' problems because it came from their baby boomer parents. We say it's about a relationship all the time, but the truth in how we treat God in our end is usually has nothing to do with the relationship. It has to do with us trying to figure out how we can get him to do what we want him to do. See, God is not an energy source. He's not a scorekeeper. He's not keeping tallies of you've been good enough in order to get what you are asking for. 
Moses would speak to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend, and so can you. There's an interactive component to this relationship. There's a relational back and forth the scriptures show that few of us actually come to grips with about God in our lives. We speak and God speaks. We act and God acts. We pray and God answers. Not always the way we want him to. We ask God to show mercy and he nahams. He relents. He repents. He changes his mind. Now, do we get confused with this? Yes, I know we do. And I understand why, because it almost sounds blasphemous, right? I can change God's mind. I thought God was unchanging. I thought he was our rock, right? Immovable, omnipotent. He knows everything. Moses, well, you know, he knew what Moses was going to pray before Moses prayed. It. And, when, and see, this is, we're good at this in the Western world. When I ask you about God, you don't say, uh, you don't talk about his character. You talk about his attributes. You would say he's omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. And so this is why we get confused. And there's, there's scripture around this which gets confusing. Uh, Malachi uh, chapter 3. I, the Lord, remember Lord is capitalized. Anytime you see Lord, that was because they were too afraid to say his name. So really it says uh, Yahweh. I, Yahweh, I don't change. Numbers chapter 23. God is not human that he should lie. He's not a human being, being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And so you can get confused. You can start to think, well, why bother interacting with this God? He's going to do whatever he wants to do, and I guess I'm just like along for the ride. But these things are true of God's character. They are un he is unchanging in his character, but he is not unchanging in all of his decisions. Very important. Next week we're going to talk about you have an enemy of your soul. There's actually a spiritual war going on all around us. We're not aware of it often. But your enemy would like nothing more than for you to believe there's no use in going to God, being with God, communing with God. It's all planned out already. What'll be will be. You can't change God's mind. You ever hear that in your ear? Why bother? It's not going to matter. It's not going to do anything. But the scriptures indicate on many occasions there is an interactive nature to our relationship with Yahweh and you can move the hand of God. You can change his mind. He's interested in what you think. You ever say to your kids, I'm not really interested in what you think, right? He's interested in what you think. Now, you look at the Moses example, right? Did Moses, did he change God's mind or was it just going to happen anyway? Was God just going to relent? He was just, it was a fake threat. He was never going to do anything to Israel anyway. Well, according to the psalmist in Psalm 106, much further on into your Bible, this is what the writer of Psalm 106 said about that story. So, he said, meaning God, he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Moses changed God's mind, and you can too. Many of you know the story of God calling a prophet um, Jonah, right? You know the story about the fish, right? And so that can get confusing, but, but there's a, the story really underlying that is Jonah is called to this city, Nineveh, and God is going to, is going to judge this city. It's a desperately wicked city. And Jonah is to go to these terrible people that Jonah just wanted nothing to do with. And he's supposed to go to them and, and tell them to repent, to, to change their mind. 
And so he does, and, and they do. You see, there's a, a, a relationship here. They move and God moves. And I love this. Here's what Jonah said. I, here's, I, you have a different translation. I'm going to read the translation I have because I, I just love this. Here's what Jonah says. He goes, I knew this would happen. Why do you think I ran away from you in the first place, refusing, refusing to preach a message to them? I knew very well that you're a compassionate God, and if these people repented, that you would change your mind too. I knew if they changed their mind, you change your mind, you can have an interactive relationship with Yahweh. Comer writes, Yahweh isn't the unmoved mover of Aristotle. He's the relational dynamic God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God who responds, who can be influenced, who can change his mind at a moment's notice. This is not a lower viewer of God. It is a much higher view of God. Theologian Karl Barth said it's, it's called the holy mutability of God. He'd be less of a God if he couldn't change his intentions when he wanted to or be open to new... Listen to this or be open to new ideas from intelligent, creative beings he's in relationship with. This is Yahweh, and you have access. Through Christ, you have access. What does that practically mean? It means maybe, maybe like you've never understood it before, that prayer really does matter. It does matter. Yahweh longs to hear from his people and to move. You have been granted through Christ access to El Shaddai, the God Almighty. Dallas Willard, one of the great spiritual minds of the last century, he put, put it this way. God's response to our prayers is not a charade. See, we think that sometimes. Well, he just wants us to pray, but he's going to do what he wants to do anyway. God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he's answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. Because when you start to think that way, it makes prayer psychologically impossible and replaces it with a dead ritual at best. And of course God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. Yahweh. We got to change our minds about Yahweh. We got to get more interested in Him than merely what He can do for us. This is what religion does. Religion teaches people how to use God to achieve some other desire. That God can be a means to an end. Listen, I'm going to give you the key to life. Yahweh is never going to be a means to some other end. Yahweh is the means and he is the end. When you find him, when you know him, when you love him, when you relate with him, you have found the pearl of great price. You have found the treasure buried in a, in a field. We don't use Yahweh to get what we want for our lives. We realize that Yahweh is what we want for our lives. He's not the means by which you achieve your treasure. He is your treasure. That's why he gave you his name. It's why he tells you what he's like, how he loves you, hoping that you would start to see what he's not. He, he's not merely a means to get what it is that you really want. 
In other words, because of God's ultimate desire, because it's to live in a loving relationship with us, and because prayer is the means he created for that relationship to exist, this is good. God might very well determine that some things will only come to pass through prayer. Some things are only going to happen through prayer. Because ultimately, it's not about God giving us what we want. It's about communicating with Yahweh and living intimately with him. Now, I know that a lot of us don't like prayer. I get it. Some people dread prayer. Others push through it because they know it's the right thing to do. Most of us avoid it. But that's because most of us don't actually pray. We just ask God for stuff. Did you see Carrie's computer? It was just a list of like sports tryouts, medical reports. We don't pray. We just ask God for things. Prayer is what Moses did with God in the tent. He met with God face to face and talked to him like a friend. Prayer is what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Father, I'm really nervous. I really don't want to do this. If it's okay, if it would be within your will, would you let this cup pass from me? Prayer is brutally honest and naked and vulnerable. It's when your deepest desires and fears and hopes and dreams, when they leak out of your mouth with no inhibitions, it's so when you talk to God with the edit button in the off position, you feel safe and heard and loved. It's a kind of relational exchange you can't get enough of. And your prayer makes a difference. Now, I, I know that this can get dicey. Because I know it sounds like I could also be telling you, you just pray, Yahweh, I mean, he's just there, do whatever you want. Whatever you want to do, Yahweh will do it. I, but we know that's not true. Right? We know that's not true. I, I'm going to give you three examples. I've given you a couple of these over the years. Uh, my daughter Caroline was born with a hernia. I've told you this story before. They, they said it was the textbook case for a hernia, and we had to bring her back in a year to have surgery. So we brought her back in a year to have surgery, and Joan and I were at the doctor's office. It was some teaching facility, and the guy came in, and he looked, and he said, yeah, it's exactly still here. It's right where it was. He said, this is a textbook whatever kind of hernia. He said, let me go get the interns, because this is such a textbook case. I want to show them. I'm not exaggerating the story one bit. And so he left, I go over in the corner, and I got this one-year-old one little girl, and I'm, I really didn't want my little girl to have surgery. So I go over in the corner, and I start praying, God, if there's a seat, I go, God, right? But now it's like, Yahweh, if there is a way, if it be in your will, I would really love for, for my little girl to not have to have surgery. If you would just heal her, like right now, that would be really awesome. And it's a true story, it's a weird story, I can't explain it. Guy comes back in, he's got all the interns behind him. He goes over to Caroline at one year old. He goes, guys, let me show you. This is the picture perfect example of what this looks like. He starts looking for it and he goes, it's gone. He said, I don't know what happened to it. It was here five minutes ago, but it appears that it's not here anymore. I'll give you another one. This is, this is a stupid story, right? This is what you're gonna say when you drive home today. That was a stupid story. So my, my other daughter, Courtney, had a, a rabbit named Mistletoe, right? She got it for Christmas, and it was a white, floppy-eared rabbit that was the bane of my existence. And <laughs> never get your kid a rabbit. And so, you know, so the, but the rabbit got away. Okay, now, we live in Long Valley in a kind of wooded community. A lot, you know what they call a, a white, floppy-eared rabbit that gets away? An appetizer, right? Like, to, for something. And so... He was gone for, I don't know, a couple days or something. I don't remember exactly what it was. And we didn't tell Courtney because, well, frankly, Courtney didn't care that much. I mean, it was mostly us taking care of it. But 
Uh, she, she didn't miss it while I was gone for the couple days, but we knew we were going to have to tell her, and then she would be upset. So I'm literally at a church elder meeting, and Joan goes out on the deck, a true story, bizarre story, puts her head down and starts praying, Lord, I'm going to have to tell Courtney about this rabbit. If there's any way, like, you could bring this rabbit back, opens her eyes, rabbit sitting on the deck. Great story. Caroline also had a very good friend this year, 14 years old, cancer throughout her body. We prayed, I prayed, the community prayed, and she died. It's not a formula. It's a relationship. It's not always gonna, you're not always gonna get the answer you want, right? I'm in a relationship with my wife. I don't always get the answer I want, right? But I love her, and she loves me, and I trust her, and she trusts me. And that's the relationship you have with Yahweh. Sky Jethani, who wrote the book With that many of us love so much, here's what he said. We are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama. We're active participants with God in the writing. Think about back to the Garden of Eden. This is what we were created to be. We are active participants with God in the writing and directing and design and action that unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It is drawing into communion with Him and there taking up our privileged role as His people. In prayer, we are invited to join Him, church, in directing the course of His world. That is Yahweh. You have access. Please don't give up. Please don't give up. The band's going to come up. I'm going to conclude. Uh, uh, Carrie, uh, Jim Carrey figured this out a little bit in the movie, um, that the relationship with God was not formulaic. It was not give me uh, a bunch of, uh, of lists of things to do. Uh, it actually concludes pretty cool. Check this out. Bruce? You have the divine spark. You have the gift for bringing joy and laughter to the world. I know, I created you. Quit bragging. <laughs> See, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's the spark. What do you want me to do? I want you to pray, son. Go ahead. Use them. Um, Lord, feed the hungry and bring peace to all of mankind. How's that? Great. If you want to be Miss America. <laughs> now, come on. What do you really care about?
with all the love she deserved from me. I want her to meet someone. Who'll see her always, as I do now. Through your eyes. Now that's a prayer. Yeah. <laughs>